Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with you. If you're the type that likes to follow an actual Bible or on, on something you can read, it's Acts chapter 8. If not, we're gonna, it's going to all come up right there magically. It's going to be really, really good. It's so good to be with my friends in Tamworth. I'm glad this worked out. I'm glad the borders opened December 1st. That's really good. I've been stuck in Queensland since February 1st. And so, uh, so there, there you go. Um, uh, just, just really briefly before we get into this, um, I have a small table set up. It's not like my normal table. My normal table takes up half the room. Um, I have a small table set up with some resources. I only brought the new stuff I did this year. Um, so there is a 12-part series on the book of Revelation back there. Um, I got so embarrassed by the stuff I was seeing people put on the internet about the book of Revelation, I just could not cope. And so I had three choices. I could judge it, not helpful. I could criticize it, not helpful. Or I could do something really stupid and argue on the internet with people. That's really dumb. So what I did was I said, no, 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 I'll just, I'll, I'll just teach about it and let the better narrative win out. So uh, it's, it's back there if you're interested in that. I also have a seven-part series on faith and uncertainty. Um, that I wrote hand on heart last November preparing for this year. It just turned out perfect. And then, and then there's a, a, a series back there called Conversations, where during the COVID lockdown, some really smart people um, had me come on their online platforms and interviewed me. And, um, and we ended up with 750 minutes worth of material. Um, we're on all kinds of different topics. So uh, 100% of what we make from that is always we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats, right? So um, all that's back there in video or audio. So after this, come by and say hello. Um, let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God, and you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothes, shelter, educate, mentally handicapped kids. That's a, it's a pretty good thing. All right, so I get to open the Bible today, right? And I take that very seriously. Anytime you open the Bible, you wanna ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? Now, I want to start this uh, idea with a, a, an illustration that I owe to my friend Ben Staines, and then I'm going to take the illustration um, somewhere that is, it's, it's brand new. Um, the, the illustration is a true story that happened in the 80s about an American that came to Australia. Now, I'm American. Americans are enamored with Australian culture. If you want to make millions of dollars, go open an Aussie-themed anything in America, right? You could do anything. The fascination largely comes from a guy named Crocodile Dundee and, and, and from a, a steak place called Outback Steakhouse, where all they basically did was name their food after Australian towns, right? That's, that's, really, that's really all they did. And, and Americans, the first time they come to Australia, all they want to see is the Outback, right? And I try to tell them, hey, you don't want to see, like, seriously, fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town, that is it. For, 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 for 3,000 miles, that's, that's, that's what you got. But they, they can't help themselves. And so uh, Americans are also uh, enamored and can't believe the size of things here. Like my pastor is an old cattleman, and his, his cattle problem that he managed when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Well, to an American, that's Connecticut. That's, the, that's an entire state, right? And so th this American came, and he couldn't believe how do you keep the cows from running away. The cow properties are too big. You can't fence them up, right? You can't put a fence around 70 miles by 30 miles. You'd need an act of Congress to build your wall or something. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? And he, he asked the farmer, he said, how do you keep the cows from running away? And the, and the farmer said, well, what you do is you, you have a surveyor come in and you dig strategic wells on different parts of the paddock and you create water sources. And, and if the cow knows where the water source is, he won't vary too far from it um, because he'll die. And he said to the American, mate, mate. <laughs> if proper wells, you don't need all the fences. If you got proper wells, you don't need all the fences, which leads me to the Gospels. J Jesus, in a nutshell, if, you, if, you're, if you're new to Jesus, you wonder, what, what was he doing? Jesus, in a nutshell, was moving the whole world from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you'd want to be treated. And you could do something more profound than being right about one verse in the Bible. You can fulfill Scripture. This was a, a, a brilliant idea. 
moving the whole world from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm, which leads me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts was a natural outworking of people who had been so profoundly affected by Jesus that they wanted to live out that message by moving the whole world to a well-based paradigm instead of a fence-based paradigm. And here's the, here's the book of Acts in a nutshell. A group of people do amazing things, and then they get persecuted for those amazing things because it doesn't fit the fences. And, and then they overcome the persecution, and then they do more amazing things, and, and, and then they get persecuted, and then they get overcome that, and then they do more amazing things, and then they get persecuted, and then they overcome that, and then they do more amazing things, and then they get persecuted, and then a guy named Stephen gets murdered. And, and then they do more amazing things. And then the guy that murdered Stephen actually gets converted. And then he does amazing things. And then he gets persecuted for doing those amazing things. That's the book of Acts in 30 seconds. <clears throat> which, which, leads me, which, which leads me to this amazing encounter in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, they're supposed to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world. By Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem. No one's left. And, and then this guy named Stephen gets murdered. And that level of persecution sort of drives people. It's like, oh, I'll go try this somewhere else, right? And particularly a guy named Philip. And Philip ends up in a place called Samaria. And he has this ridiculous encounter with a guy called the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and I want to open that passage, talk for about 14 minutes on what happened, and then spend the rest of the time talking about what's happening in us right now because of it, right? right? So this is Acts chapter 8. If you could bring that up for me, Lucky. There we go. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down to Jerusalem and Gaza. This is a desert place. So he's calling him to go to a place no one would be at. It's kind of a strange thing. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot. And he was reading... The prophet Isaiah. Now, nothing about this passage makes sense. You have a guy who rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. According to Google Maps, that is 3,853 kilometers. To do an idea, that is riding a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. 3,853 kilometers is Brisbane to Perth. That is far. That is far. So it leads me to all kinds of questions like, why would a guy ride a horse 3,853 kilometers clutching the scroll of Isaiah? For what reason? That doesn't make any sense at all. And then he ends up in a place no one else is, and the Spirit of God leads Philip to talk to him. And then it gets even stranger. Watch what happens. Next slide. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join him. So Philip ran him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you even understand what you're reading? Like, do you, do you understand what that guy's talking about? And the guy says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Keep going. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before a shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And, and the eunuch said to Philip, about who, I ask you, does this prophet, is he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Someone else, like he, the Ethiopian's understanding of, of, of our tradition was so elemental, he's not even sure if Isaiah's talking about himself or somebody else. Isaiah's talking about a God that's willing to suffer with humans instead of sitting above them. And this is compelling. And he's like, I, I, I want to, do you know who this guy's talking about? Now watch what happens. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road. They came to some water. And, and the eunuch said, hey, look, here's some water. What's preventing me from being baptized? In other words, I'd like to join your Jesus movement. Is, is there any reason I can't? And he, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. And Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Keep going. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And they went on their way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, this passage is strange, and I have lots of questions. And if you've been paying attention while I've been reading, you should have questions too. So I'm going to let you in on the questions I asked when I read this. Is there too much information in this passage? Like, why a eunuch? Why not the Ethiopian guy? Or why not bury the Ethiopian? 
Why, why include that he's missing his anatomy? Like I could picture the Ethiopian eunuch confronting Luke right now. What are you thinking? Telling the whole world I'm a eunuch? You know Willard can't read over that and just let it go. He's going to point it out to a whole room of people. What's wrong with you? Why is that information pertinent? And it keeps calling him a eunuch. By the way, this guy's a eunuch. Hey, hey, if I haven't told you already, this guy's a eunuch. Like, this is weird, right? And why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? That's weird. It's very far from where he is. He had to ride a horse there. And, and why the scroll of Isaiah? Out of all the scrolls of Scripture, he's clutching a scroll from Isaiah. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Isaiah is a prophet that regularly called out corrupt uses of political power against the poor. And this guy is interested? That doesn't make any sense. And how does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing his anatomy? By the way, if I haven't mentioned it yet, he's a eunuch. Next slide. Next one. And is there any reason why I can't be baptized? Why would he ask that? And was there a reason he can't be baptized? The answer is yes. We're going to talk about that in a second. And I think what this passage is really confronting for us today in 2020 in Tamworth is, are we going to be a fence-based ministry or a well-based church? Right? Because all the tension in this passage comes from the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, this is what it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. In other words, no eunuchs will ever be welcomed by God. Now, that's a rule. It's in the Bible. It's in our verses. No eunuch can ever be welcomed by God. So when he said, is there any reason why I can't be baptized? To Philip, who would have known these rules, he'd have went, yeah, actually there is. You're a eunuch? What do we do? And it goes, it goes worse. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter in the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the 10th generation. I'm, I was born in 1976. I can tell you in my lifetime, I heard a youth pastor use that verse to sort of motivate teenagers to avoid premarital relationships because if, if they happen to mess up and get somebody pregnant, that child could never go to heaven. Nor their grandchildren, nor grand, 10 generations, Right? Now, now that, that is hermeneutical nonsense, but those people left the church and then people go, oh, unfortunately they rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them and that image should have been rejected. It gets worse. And no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Now, Jesus' presence just by itself is very confronting to this passage. If you check Jesus' genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. There were certain questionable circumstances around the, around the situation regarding his birth, right? And so, so in, in the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, there are more fence than Jesus had in his entire ministry. That's what's going on here, which leads to this question. Why Isaiah? So this foreigner eunuch, you have a foreigner eunuch. There's lots of reasons he can't be a part of things. A foreigner eunuch is so compelled with Isaiah. Why? On the same scroll he was reading, this is what Isaiah says. Next slide. No foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. What? And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I'll give, a, I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. In other words, Isaiah is like, if a foreigner eunuch wants in on what God's doing, God's not going to put them out. What's wrong with you? I will give everlasting name that will endure forever. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love them in the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep my Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Keep going. For, for their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my offer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still those besides those already gathered. So day 23 says, no eunuchs, no foreigners. Isaiah's like, I, I think God's nicer than that. I think if a foreigner eunuch wants in, he could be in. And if you've never heard me say anything else, hear me say this. Christ-centered communities of people 
should never read the Bible statically, but always as a dynamic, progressive, moving narrative to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. Deuteronomy 23 says no eunuchs. Isaiah 56 says eunuchs that want it. Matthew 19, Jesus is like, God made somebody eunuchs. Some people are made eunuchs by God. And if you can accept that, do. If you can't, whatever, right? And then Acts 8, you have this Ethiopian foreigner eunuch going, I want in. And Philip has to decide, are we going to be right about Deuteronomy 23 verse 1? Or are we going to do something more profound? Are we going to fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you? Right? And as a Christ-centered community. See, I think I've, I, I haven't earned it, but I think I've shown that I am for the chapel in Tamworth, right? And so I'd like to speak for a second, not as a guest, but as like a member of the teaching team and talk about the values that make this church what it is. And if we're going to be a part of this thing and we're going to be happy in it, then we got to get on the same page around the chapel does not exist to be right about singular verses. The chapel exists to fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, Right? Because there's some characters in this, in the next slide. The, the characters are, lucky that next one, yep. There's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer. He would have been disqualified by the rules. He's obviously very hungry for the truth. It, 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 then there's Philip. He was one of the original 12. He was from a devoutly Orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by 613 fences until he met Jesus. Started asking different questions. He started going, wait a minute. And by the way, as a side note, there's a lot of fruit involved in this story. Next slide. 65% of Ethiopia today identifies as Christ followers. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this eunuch. In other words, you never know having one act where we're brave enough not to be right about one verse but we're brave enough to fulfill scripture and treat somebody as we would want to be treated. You never know how far reaching. Today, two thirds of an entire country identifies as Christ followers because of this one moment. It's, 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 it's more, it's bigger than the story. Let, let's say it this way, next slide. This is an entire book about being surprised by how generous God is with people who are thirsty. Uncircumcised Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Peter's preaching this message and it says the Holy Spirit filled the Gentiles just as he had the Jews at the beginning. And Peter's surprised, and the religious leader's like, hey, explain yourself, bro. God doesn't fill Gentiles, right? And Peter's like, you know what? Surprisingly, I agree with you. I've been taught my whole life God doesn't fill Gentiles. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with whatever God's up to? In Acts 4, they were surprised and amazed that normal, ordinary, uneducated people were being used by God. Why is that surprising? They'd never seen that before. This is an entire book about what it means to be well-based instead of fence-based. Now, to the best of my ability, that's what happened. Now let's ask a more profound question. What's happening in me right now because of what happens? And what does this mean for what kind of church we're trying to build here in Tamworth? Uh, next slide. See, Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus asks, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Jesus abandoned the are you worthy question and he obsessed with the are you thirsty question. Let's say it this way. Christ-centered communities who are fence-based are obsessed with the question, are you worthy? Have, have, you done it? have you done this? Have you done that? Are you keeping the rules? Fence-based churches worry about whether someone's smoking in the parking lot. Well-based churches go, wait a minute, are, do they want it? Does somebody, is somebody wanting what God has for them? Are they willing to say their next yes, regardless how small that yes might be? Because we are here to facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes, regardless of how small that is. Like offense, let's say it this way. Offense-based ministry asks, are you worthy? A well-based ministry asks, are you thirsty? Let, let's say it a couple other ways. Offense-based ministry is obsessed with sinning less. A well-based ministry is obsessed with loving more. And by loving more, the sinning less issue takes care of itself. A fence-based ministry is, is everything needs to be fixed. Bring us your problems and we'll get in the middle of it and fix it for you. That's ridiculous and that's exhausting. 
A, a, a well-based ministry says nothing needs to be hidden. In other words, if we create a culture where nothing needs to be hidden and everything's in the light anyway, then it, it takes care of itself. See, see the, key, the key to building a Christ-centered church today is not worth, it's thirst. So let's define what thirsty is. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. A lack of thirst equals a lack of teachability. It's a lack of teachability. So a, a thirsty church is a, is, is a teachable church. As a matter of fact, the, the root word for disciple in Greek and Hebrew is student. Someone who's teachable. Like whoever the smartest person about God is in the whole world, they haven't even scratched one one hundredth of one percent of what God is. So if we, if, we, if we start with the notion, if I haven't thought of it, it can't be true. Well, then that's, we've lost our teachability. I'll speak for myself, and I'm pretty sure I speak for the leadership of the church. I, I'd, I'd rather have a couple hundred thirsty people than I'd want to pastor a church of 5,000 unteachable Christians. 5,000 unteachable Christians sounds like hell to me. But, but a thirsty church is a teachable church. It's, it's a humble church. A lack of thirst equals lack of humility. The, the idea that liberty is best experienced and expressed when submitted to love. When we submit our liberties for somebody else. That somebody else matters. There's a whole chapter in Romans dedicated to, if you're okay eating food sacrificed to idols, but someone else is, don't, don't stop, but just don't do it in front of them. Like, prefer the other person. A, a thirsty church is a responsible church. A lack of thirst equals lack of responsibility. In the Genesis poem, even before sin came into the, the situation, the, the, people gathered meaning in their life through how they took responsibility for their world. The opposite of that is blaming. And that's what everybody did in the Genesis poem. Everybody just started blaming everybody else, right? Let's say it one more way. A lack of thirst equals ambivalence. It's like, well, now that I'm in, in a fence-based church, once you're in, that's the whole thing. See, a, a fence-based church says, we want you to convert so that you can die one day and go somewhere else. Right? How boring is that? Right? A well-based church says, well, no, no, if I could use an orange as an example. A fence-based church says, we want you to convert and be an orange. A well-based church says, no, 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 we want you to convert to be an orange, but we're actually concerned kind of orange you're becoming. We want to hook that orange to the water source so that it could be the best orange it could be, right? Let's say it this way. A, a, a thirsty church is a teachable church. It's a humble church. It's a responsible church. And it's a group of people passionate about the infinite possibilities God has for our world. That we are not called to go to heaven when we die. We are called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. The idea in Jesus is never do something so you can go to heaven when you die. The idea in Jesus is allow heaven to be so established in you here that when you do walk into heaven, you don't get whiplash, right? It's, it's, it's that. It's like, oh, yeah, this is, oh, this is how I've been living for a while. Oh, a table with every tribe, tongue, and race? Good thing I got that racism off my life because, man, I'm, I'm liking this. Like, it's, it's that. Could you imagine with me a place full of teachable humble, responsible, and passionate people, that'd be a place worth going to. And that's what we're trying to do here in Tamworth. We're trying to build a culture of teachability, humility, responsibility, and a culture passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. A culture that asks no questions about worth and infinite questions about thirst. A culture not concerned with sinning less, but obsessed with loving more. A culture not concerned with fixing everything, but a culture, a, a culture that is built on, on no shaming and nothing has to be hidden. Maybe we could even put some more language around this. Next slide. The overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. By Acts 15, there was four. They had such a radical encounter with Christ that they had moved 613 to four. That is a really good effort in a decade. And, and the four were food sacrificed to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. By the time Paul is writing his letters, the food sacrificed to idols didn't matter. He said, just do it in private, right? Like they're, they're, they're moving things forward. And, and next slide. Here's my question for us. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of fencing? Like if you're heading towards the center, it doesn't matter where the fences are. In other words, if you're, if you're too obsessed with the fence, it might be because your shoulders are heading the wrong direction. Like I'll give you an example, right? 
Fences are important for a civilized society. Let me example. Don't kill each other, right? Really good plan, right? But if you need the Bible to tell you that, you might have missed the point, right? If you've been journeying with God for 10 years and the only reason you're not killing someone is because the Bible forbids it, I would say there's a more profound way to live, right? Hey, don't take each other's stuff. Really good, really good idea. But, but I, and I would bet that nobody in here stole something this week. I would all bet that the reason you didn't steal is not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a thief. Here's a great fence. Ready? Don't sleep with other people's spouses. Right? Great plan. I would also say that if you need the Bible to tell you that, you've missed the point. Right? I, like, I, like if, if the only reason you're not engaging in that behavior is because the Bible forbids it, there's a more profound way to live. Right? It, 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 uh, if, you don't, if you don't understand what I'm saying, um, here, do this. Um, after this is over, I want you to take your spouse to a coffee. I want you to hold him by the hand. And I want you to say, listen, I love you with all my heart. But the only reason I'm not with everybody else is because the Bible forbids it. See how that works out, right? <laughs> it, it, there, is a, uh, there is a more profound way to live, right? Let, let's say it this way. Are we more focused on direction or distance? A space ministry is, is obsessed with distance from the center. A well-based ministry is focused on direction. Because a well-based ministry could say we could facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes. Regardless of so I was doing a um I was doing a volunteers night for a, a pretty big church. There was hundreds and hundreds of people at this volunteers night. Supposedly you had to be on team to be at this night. I'm not sure that everybody was on team. It was a lot of people. And, and they did this thing called Minute to Win It, where you told your God story, something you saw God do because of what you were serving. It was meant, the stories were meant to motivate people that what you're doing matters, you know? And um, it was brilliant. And, and the la- I had to speak after this. And the, and the last, and you had one minute to tell your story. You had this security guy on a stopwatch. He's going to take stuff from you if you, right? <laughs> so the guy that went last, I had to speak after him. He comes up and he says, Hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. Because when you want to kill a party, right? And I was on the front row. I had to go after this. And I'd already started planning in my mind. I thought he had waited till last to get up and say, you Christians are all full of crap. And this is all bupkis and da-da-da-da-da. And this is why you're stupid, right? I, I thought that's what was coming. And so I was going to disarm it when I got up by telling him how much we loved him. And we honored him. And we're so glad you're here, right? Because that's how, you, that's how you, you de-escalate things, right? So I'm saying this in mind. He goes, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. He said, but I was a lonely atheist. And a friend of mine told me that you would let me belong here whether I believed in God or not. And true to his word, you are the nicest group of people I think I've ever met. He said, by my third week, you asked me to be on your host team. So my job every Sunday is to be nice to people at the door, to show women where the bathroom is, and show people to take their children. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. (laughs) This is wonderful. And he said, so my God story is this. Because of your kindness, I'm choosing tonight to step back and consider God might be real. Well... The whole place went nuts. Why? Because that's a well-based place. A well-based place can handle it. They can say, hey, look at the direction of their shoulders. They're heading toward dinner. A fence-based ministry would go, yeah, but what if he died in a donkey accident? Wait, what are you talking about? His shoulders are heading some way and he's saying his next yes. And if we can't facilitate and celebrate that guy's next yes, we've missed the whole point. See, fences matter less when we're focused on moving towards the center. Let's keep moving. Next slide. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build wells instead of fences? That's how you build a church. Wells and thirst represent life and provision and prosperity and abundance. Say it another way. Next slide. See, Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. See, Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. The way he was raised his whole life, 613 rules. He's like, yeah, but I met Jesus. This can't, it can't be that. In other words, we don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. And any fence that makes it more difficult to get to the well missed the point. Fences should corral us towards the well, not be hurdles in front of the well that we must jump over. Please be to this. There's this festival every year 
called the Festival of Tabernacles. Here's essentially, if I could be rudimentary with it. Essentially, for seven days, everybody chooses to live outside in a tent. I have a friend in Wisconsin who's a Christ-believing Jew. And every year in Wisconsin on that week, he lives in his backyard in a tent. It's freezing. And I said, why do you do that? He said, because it is important to remind ourselves that if God had not interjected himself in our story, that we would be homeless, refugees, and slaves. And, and in that week, they, they, they give an offering and they, and they proclaim in a loud voice, my father was a wandering Aramean. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 26. My father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, if God had not interjected himself in my story, I was a homeless refugee slave, still be one. And it's very important that if we ever lose sight of God's place in our story and where we would be had he not interjected our life, then we will lose our place in their story. And so they, they, they pray every year on that week for living water. Living water. And you live in an agricultural sort of place that needs water. So you understand this. Now, Jesus did something unbelievable on this day. Next slide. This is John chapter 6. On the last day, the greatest day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus stood on the steps of the most fence-based thing ever invented. And he says, actually, the fullness of the presence of God that you've been told your whole life is behind that curtain, I'm making it available to everyone. What's the criteria? Do you want it? That's it. Do you imagine the Q&A at that? Uh, what if they're eunuchs? Yep. Uh, foreigners? Yep. Uh, Moabites? Yep. Check the genealogy. I'm 128th Moabite. I could see Jesus going, uh, we could go through all 613, or you could just trust me, if you're thirsty, you're in. We're eliminating the fences and elaborating the wells because we need to facilitate and celebrate people's next yes. That's what a church is meant to do. A Christ-centered community today is meant to facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes with no fear of shaming. No questions about worth and infinite questions about thirst. Are we a teachable place, a humble place, a responsible place, and a place passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world? Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle for a second. Next slide. When is the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? When's the last time I saw God do something and I was like, I didn't think God could do that? And I would say, if we can't name that, it's not because God has quit amazing us. It's because we quit paying attention. One of my best friends in the world is a guy named Richard Crisco. Richard Crisco was the youth pastor 25 years ago during the Brownsville revival. Um, this was 10,000 people a night for seven years. People doing amazing, amazing stuff, right? And I asked him once, I said, tell me a story from Brownsville that you, you saw God do something and you didn't think God could do that. And he said, oh, that's easy. He said, there's one night. He said, we were praying, it was 2.30 in the morning and the line was still around the building. He said, we were so tired. He said, I looked up and there was a group of young people who had come to make fun of us. They were doing Saturday Night Live skits, right? So what was happening was they were pretending to pray for each other and they could pretend to fall and it was hilarious and everybody's clapping and, and they were up in the balcony making fun of us. And he said, I think in my tiredness, I looked up and I went, God, send a bear to eat them now, you know? And he said, next thing I knew, they were down the front. And I'd had enough. So I eyeballed security. We're going to throw them out because you're not going to make fun of us down here. And I walked over and he, and he said, I just said, guys, that's enough. It's enough. Time to go home now. And he said, the leader of the group said, please, sir, help us. And he said, what happened to you? He said, we don't know if you noticed this, but we were making fun of you up there. Richard said, I know. And he said, well, the last skit we did, we were going to do, this is our friend, he was, he was hurt in, a, in an accident. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He's in a, he's in a, um, like a wheelchair. And he said, what we were going to do is, is we, had, we, had, we had strings we had tied to certain parts of him. And I was going to pretend to pray for him. And then we were going to move around like a puppet, like he was walking out of the wheelchair. You know? And um, like, because if you have friends like that, who needs enemies, right? <laughs> and he said, I pretended to pray for the guy. 
And he said, fire went through him and he walked out of the chair. And he said, I realize we're messing with something that's above our pay grade. He said, could you help us please? And Richard Crisco said to me, can God use an atheist to pray for another atheist with the intent of making fun of God to heal them and show how much he loves them? And I said, I don't know. He said, I didn't either. He said, but I, I saw it. Have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, and unclean over a hungry, thirsty paradigm? Where have we honored right or wrong, in or out, clean or unclean? Uh, or, 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 or am I blaming? Is there any place right now I'm blaming somebody else for, for instead of responsibility? Next one. Am I teachable? I'd say number five, am I flexible? If God saw fit to fill them, who am I? So God uses an atheist to pray for another atheist with the intent and motive of making fun. Who am I? Um, I think the bigger question and the biggest question I want us to wrestle with is, at at the chapel in Tamworth, are we going to build deeper wells or higher fences? Because I can tell you to be a part of what this place is going to do in the future and be happy. Um, We got to be well-based. What does that mean? It means we're, we're obsessed with, are you thirsty, not are you worthy? We're obsessed with loving more, not setting less. We're obsessed with nothing needs to be hidden instead of everything needs to be fixed. We're obsessed with being teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world. We're focused on direction of people's shoulders, not the distance they are from the center. And we're willing to facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection of scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you. Can we give Shane another? Thank you. Uh, Shane, you are a gift to the body of Christ. We're so grateful for you. Thank you. We're so grateful for the connection um, that we got to make with you. And uh, yeah, so grateful. Um, Loco, can you put the coffee slide up on the board, please? That's the number to text if you've got any questions. And um, this man is a freak. You don't need to limit your questions just to the subject matter of the message. Uh, he is able to answer anything on the spot. So feel free to, any questions about the Bible or how, one of the, one of the things I love to ask Shane is, how would you explain this to a non-Christian? Because mm. for someone who is always in church and always speaking, somehow you manage to stay yes. relevant. So maybe that's a question, Shane. How do you manage to stay relevant to the questions that people are asking rather than the ones that we think they're asking. So, so to be relevant to the questions people are asking is you, you have to master the art of listening. And good listeners are so rare. Like think about it in your life. How many people can you name that you would say, man, they're a good listener? That's rare. And so what that tells me is, is that if we become good listeners, we make ourselves a valuable commodity in our world. So I, I've endeavored to, um, to, to make great friends outside of, of church. And, um, and when you listen to the questions they're asking, um, then, then you realize where you can be in the center. I'll give you an example. So um, I became good friends with a, with a, a neuroscientist um, who, is, uh, who is an atheist. And we were talking about the nature of life and compassion and things like this. And, um, and about three hours into our thing, he says, are you a Christian? And I said, I don't know. Because I don't know what you mean by Christian. So I don't know what you think a Christian is. So if I say yes, then I'm acquiescing to what you think a Christian is. And that could be some jacked up crazy person. So um, I don't know what you mean by Christian, so I can't answer that. I can tell you I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't know what you mean by Christian. And he goes, oh, he said, I used to be a Christian. He said, I'm an atheist now, or maybe a deist. And I said, oh, if you don't, he's one of the most intelligent and one of the kindest people I've ever met. I said, if you don't mind me asking, how did you journey from Christian to to atheist or deist? What happened? He said, well, I was a part of a Pentecostal tradition. He said, I don't know if you know anything about the Pentecostals. I said, no. (laughs) And he said, because I wanted to hear his side without him filtering it, right? And he said, he said, what happened was, he said, and they, he was so nice. He said they were authentic and they were sincere. He said, and um, he said, we were at a prayer meeting and they were praying for revival. He said, if you don't know what revival is, 
He said, here's, here's basic. They were praying to God that the whole world would convert and become like them. And he said, and I thought to myself, if the whole world saw the world, how these people saw the world, the world would not be better. And he said, any narrative where if the whole world converts to the way you see things, the world's not better, has a hole in the narrative. And I thought, that is the most genuine, articulate critique of Christianity I've ever heard in my life. And so what I started doing was I started organizing messages that challenge the way we see the world in a way that if the whole world see it that way, then it would be better. Like if the whole world became well-based instead of fence-based, the world would in fact be, be, be better. And, um, and I said, what else? He said, well, the other thing that bothered me was, he said, the Christian tradition I was in uses a fear of punishment or an expectation of reward as the primary motivator of behavior. He said, how unprofound is that? If the only reason you're loving your neighbor as you would love yourself is to keep yourself out of hell, then that's unprofound. Or if the only reason you're loving your neighbor as you would love yourself is to get some reward someday, that's also unprofound. What if we were loving just because it was the right thing to do? And I thought, and so now he and I have a relationship. He, he, we, we, we play golf together. So when he sees me on the tee sheet, he puts his name down. We, we, and and we, we chat. A golf is a four-hour walk. And so, and so we chat about things. And, um, and so he, the other day, he says to me, he, he missed a putt. And so he misses this putt. He shouldn't have missed the putt. He misses the putt. And I said, how'd you miss that, mate? And he, he looked at me and winked. And he said, because there's no God in heaven. And I said, and so I, I was my turn to putt. So I put, I said, I said, oh, absolutely. God definitely does not exist. Right? And I put in, went on. Right? And, and I just held my face straight. So a whole later, he said, I can't tell if you're serious. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, you said God doesn't exist. I said, absolutely. God definitely does not exist. 100%. I said, no Christian thinks God exists. That's just stupid. And he said, tell me more. I said, well... For something to exist, it has to be an object outside of you. So when Christians say God exists, I'm not mad at them. I know what they mean. They mean God is real and amen. But when you use the word existence, it means God is an object outside of you. So this table exists. And if I can figure out how to use it, I can make it serve me. That's not the God at all. Actually, first century Christians were killed for atheism because they, they demanded that God does not exist. So when the Roman governors would say, where does your God exist? Where's his temple? Where's his image? Where can we go look at him? They say, our God does not exist. Our God insists. I said, so in Christianity, God does not exist. In Christianity, God insists. There's one God holding the whole thing together. And if that's the case, then you can't treat women worse than men. You can't treat blacks worse than whites. You can't treat the poor worse than rich because there's one God holding the whole thing together. And he went, well, who wouldn't sign up for that? I said, exactly. <laughs> but you have to be willing to listen and not defend. Because when he said God doesn't exist, if I go, yes, he does, then I've lost. So I just met him God is always humble enough to meet people where they think he is and then move them from there. Then why would I be any different, right? So you, you don't think God exists? Let's start there. I just agreed with him. Yeah, God doesn't exist. And actually, I don't think God exists. I do think God insists that as soon as we start imagining God as an existing object that, that is there to serve us, it leads to questions that are unanswerable. Like, why doesn't God control the pandemic? Well, an existent God that's sitting above things and can control or not control, that question makes sense. But an insistent spirit choosing to suffer with humanity instead of controlling everything, that's a better story. And so, but, but it, it has to do with the dominant image that we, that we use about God. Anyway, that might be too much. But. No, it actually answers the next question, I think, how do you explain suffering to a non-Christian yeah. um, is, is along those lines. But... Um, I, I, from someone's perspective who comes to church who's like, yes, Shane, 100% agree with what you say, but like the front row here, they all emulate exactly what you say, but everyone back from the front row, they're all critical and judgmental and super harsh, like all these guys here. Yes, Look at yes, them. Yes. And um, so how do, you, how do you come to a place when, yes, I agree with the God that you're talking about, but, but there's people who are back from the front row mm. who, who represent something different? Well, I think we're under... I think we're under a biblical mandate to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And actually, Titus 3.9 says, let all leaders in the Christ community avoid foolish controversies and any quarrels about Scripture. 
How well are we doing at that? If we just did that one thing, how much better would the, would the world see the church, you know? And so I'm 44. I'm at least of average intelligence. And I've, I've never been able to move someone who started with their conclusion. So the way I live my life now, this is about a two or three year old thing for me, is if, if someone starts with their conclusion, I just let them, I, oh, amen. Um, and because at some point, it's like the book of Revelation, right? I argued about, if, if I argued about it to people who said something that is obviously nonsensical, but they started with their conclusion, then I'm wasting my energy. The better narrative always wins out. It, it, so light always overcomes darkness. So you don't, you don't have to convince someone who's not where you are. You just live your story and the better story always wins out eventually. The better narrative always wins out. You never see Jesus in a fist for, as a matter of fact, you see Jesus say, well, if you need to kill me, kill me. It, it, the better story is going to win out whether you kill me or not. It, it's, it's like, what, what, what are you doing? Mm. Um, this next question, um, do you choose whether you speak to the people you choose Okay. Who are you speaking to? Okay. okay, if a church sees themselves as well-based, yeah. why do people still feel left out and not cared for because people are too busy? And I would identify that, that that's definitely like busyness is a barrier to... Yeah, to well-based. So, so there's always going to be a gap between what we say we value and what the reality actually is. And that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a normal journeying person. So... I've never met anyone in my life yet that when they heard this message went, no, we need more fences. <laughs> never. But there are default mechanisms in people that default to fence-based thinking. So I've actually met someone who said, we need more of that well-based talk, who then their next question was, Shane, what about people smoking in the parking lot? And that told me they totally missed my point. If you can't handle someone smoking in the parking lot and facilitate and celebrate that person's next yes, then we've missed the whole point. And the idea, like, you ever hear Christians go, oh, Shane, do you believe how crazy this world is these days? What are you talking about compared to when? <laughs> nothing is worse. <laughs> Not, nothing is worse today compared to 400 years ago other than pollution and obesity. <laughs> that is it. Everything else is better. Sexual morality is better. This is the most pure, this generation row is the most pure generation ever born. And that makes sense because if women are taught they can think better of themselves, then, then, and they have more choice, then promiscuity definitely goes down. There, there was a huge study that talked about the, the generation born in the 40s had over twice as many partners before marriage than the generation turning 30 today did. And the caveat was that the generation born in the 40s got married at 19. The generation today gets married at 31. So with 10 years more practice, they're having half as many partners. I, I, I asked my dad. My dad was born in 46. I said, Dad, I don't want to know the details. <laughs> I just want to know, do you agree with that or not? And he said... I just want to make sure, is that saying that I had more than them? I said, yes. He goes, for sure. He said, we were teenagers in the 60s, man. The difference was we didn't announce it, right? And so what's happening is there's this trajectory where everything's getting better. And, and we should be, why? Because of the work of the Spirit of Christ in the world. Is, is God done redeeming the world? No. Is it better than it's ever been? Yes. And we should be the ones pointing out all of that. And so, but, but if someone starts with a conclusion, we have to discipline ourselves to let them have that conclusion. Think, think through this. Think through the last 10 arguments you had with someone who started with their conclusion. And then think how many of those worked. Like right or wrong, it's just unwise. It just doesn't work. Mm. This person, um, I don't think, has missed the point of the message. I, yeah. I think they're grappling with all the different concepts. Sure. Um, how, so they're talking about um, teams and leadership and criteria. Hmm. So when the next yes might be to step up to that. Yeah. Um, do, does a, a yes necessitate a no? So that yeah. loving more, does that necessitate? Yeah, so, so 
there's two things going on in that question. One is the gap between personal liberty and corporate tolerance, okay? So if, if you ever, as a leader, misjudge the gap between your personal growth arc and the corporate tolerance arc, you can be correct, but you hold. You'll lose your voice, right? And because a person, you can grow this fast. You can read one book. There we go. But when you're leading 20 people, you have to default that arc to the slowest moving person in that 20 person, right? Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I met someone who had a swear word tattooed on their forehead. The, the problem was is that they did it in the mirror when they were high, so it was backwards. <laughs> and you know how, like, if, if some, something here, you can go look at their eyes, look at their eyes. But when it's on their forehead, it's kind of hard. Like, oh, my God, right? So finally, I just said, I just said, I said, mate, you've got, you got a really bad word on your forehead, man. I, I, I need to know the story. He said, I know. He said, I got high one night and mad. And he said, I don't know if you realize I did it myself in the mirror. I said, I picked that up. <laughs> and um, I said, I said, are they being nice to you here? He said, oh, yes. He said, the pastor told me for every dollar I save to get it removed, he'll match it. And he said, um, he said they, they told me I could serve anywhere in the church other than the children's ministry and the front door greeter. <laughs> right? Which makes sense. I said, I said, where are you serving? He said, I'm the sound guy, which means we're going to put you behind a wall and knobs and no one will ever see you, which is great. Right? Anyway, my point is, is that my mom has 2,500 employees. And she has no personal issue having that guy in, in her life. She'll have a meal, have him at her house, doesn't matter. But she couldn't hire him to be customer service. And that doesn't make her a hypocrite. That makes her normal. If, if there's a gap between your personal growth and the corporate tolerance, so there, that's the one thing. The other thing going on is part of what we have to do is we have to facilitate and celebrate other people's next yes. And, but, but we can't lose all corporate standards because if we all corporate standards, you'll lose the corporate tolerance arc and you'll topple your organization. The issue is never what is right and what is wrong. That is a horrible question. Actually, it's such a horrible question. It's the first lie ever told in the Bible and it was told by a talking snake evidently. And so you should never forget a lie told by a talking snake. And the lie told by a talking snake is, is if you master right and wrong, that leads to life. It does not because there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise. And so the question when you're leading an organization is not where does personal liberty allow something, but where can the corporate tolerance move forward with wisdom? And when we wrestle with those three tensions, then we can come to some wisdom decision instead of getting stuck in the right or wrong fence-based paradigm. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, okay, well, we want to let you go to um, talk to people at the table. Okay. Um, we've got more questions, uh, but we'll try to answer them in the 10. Yep. Um, and also, um, if not, then... I might ask you offline and we'll actually text these people back. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Can we thank Shane again? Thank you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.